All right, everyone. Uh, good to be with you this morning and to open up to God's Word. So let's commit our time in prayer together. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, thank you again for your love and grace to us that we can sing of your great love for us, your faithfulness. And uh, pray, Lord, that we could also live by faith, trusting in your provision and all that you supply richly. Pray, Lord, for the text this morning that you would speak through me to encourage your people, um, that they would come to know you and to love you. Pray for those among us this morning who may not know you, that your Son may be truly revealed, the gospel may be proclaimed clearly, and that they would believe you. So with that, we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We good on the audio, guys? Just need more of me? It's usually what happens. <laughs> All right. Well, good to be with you guys. Um, I'm, I'm having a blast uh, studying Second Peter in depth, and uh, it's always exciting to get into new material and to come here and share it together. It's its own form of nourishment. So we'll continue that study this morning. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. <clears throat> Our text for this morning will be verses 3 through 4. But to establish context, I will begin reading at verse 1, because, of course, all these verses are connected together. So please hear the word of the Lord being read. 2 Peter 1 Verses 1 through 4. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, those who, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. May God be blessed by the reading of his word. So here we go, Second Peter. Um, just reading through this several times especially following 1 Peter, it really provides what I think is a fine sequel. While there is some overlap, 2 Peter really tends to stand on its own in terms of what is being presented. So, remember in 1 Peter, themes are important here. So, in 1 Peter, it was standing in the true grace of God. That was the primary theme. Now, when it comes to 2 Peter, along with its own challenges that these churches are facing, the primary theme is to grow grow in the true grace of God. We want to become strong. We want our faith to last. We want to continually rest in the provision of grace that is ours through the gospel and through the work of Christ and strive on to Christian maturity. That's what so much of this letter is geared toward, in fact, is Christian maturity. No longer being infants, no longer being believers who are tossed about by every wind of doctrine, but to grow firm to grow ever more sure 
on God's Word and all that He supplies for us. So, in the opening couple of verses, we explored a very important theme. Now, now keep in mind, these things, these things that we're going through in verses 1 through 4 lay an important groundwork for the entire book. And we've talked about the various themes that come about as well as the uh, the various goals that we have in the study of a book like this. But if those goals are ever to be reached, we first have to focus on what Peter says at the very beginning. They lay the foundation for the rest of the book and for some very precious truths. Remember that when Peter describes why he wrote this letter, it was to remind the churches, right? It was to remind them to call their mind to a certain place. And I believe that verses 1-4 through four really characterize those bedrock truths to which we constantly draw our thoughts, anchor them down in those truths. It is only by then that we can grow. So as you recall, well if you recall, verses 1-2 through two that we covered last week, uh, the theme was what Christ must be. Right? These are things that Christ must be. And there were three of them. One was that Christ must be proclaimed. That's the first thing. We are to proclaim Christ in whatever capacity. Secondly, Christ must be believed. Right? He must be trusted in. He must be, he must be acknowledged and believed upon as Lord and Savior and King. Thirdly, Christ must be known. So three very foundational things to call in mind in order to grow in the true grace of God. To grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Three fundamental Christian convictions that I believe cut through all the haze and uncertainty that we experience both today and that obviously these churches were struggling with in the first century as persecution was mounting. This gives us immense clarity as to the mindset toward how Christ must be regarded if we are to grow in true grace. We must regard Christ in a particular fashion. We as a church must respond to Him and say, yes, He must be treated this way. Right? These things must be in place. We must proclaim Him, we must believe Him, and we must know Him. We must know Him personally, intimately, deeply, and increasingly. So while verses 1 and 2 stress how we are to treat Christ, verses 3 and 4, I think, are even more impactful. They are more fundamental, actually. They describe how Christ treats us. So all of these things we are to call to remembrance so that we will continue to grow strong and contend for the faith. Now, before we get into the text directly, I want to give you what I believe is a major byproduct and benefit of our study this morning. And it is this it is assurance. Many Christians, we know, struggle with assurance whether or not we are truly in the faith. And this text, I think, provides immense encouragement regarding assurance for the Christian. Here's what usually happens regarding assurance we typically go to the more subjective things, and these are good things. They are Valid things. But we typically concentrate on issues like our ability to obey, our love for Christ, our spiritual growth, consistency in the Christian walk. It could be consistency in prayer, consistency in the Word, uh, joy around other Christians. Those, those are all good things, and they serve the cause of assurance. But there are, there's an ebb and flow to those that we have to acknowledge. Sometimes we stumble, sometimes we fall. Sometimes we forget who we are in Christ. And for those reasons, we lack assurance. But one thing I want to call our minds to through this text is the fact that our assurance 
is grounded in the things that Christ has done. Concrete, objective, even historical things that He has accomplished and continues to accomplish. Things that are neither taken away by force or failure, nor fade with time. See, our assurance isn't grounded ultimately in what Christ has done in us. It's ultimately grounded in what Christ has done for us. So for those of you struggling today with assurance, say, be encouraged. Listen to what Christ has done. Those things which cannot be denied. And remember this, you can doubt your salvation. You can have second thoughts about whether or not you are in Christ, but you cannot doubt what Christ has done. You cannot doubt Christ Himself. So see these couple of verses, verses 3 and 4, as an opportunity to refresh your faith. A faith that God Himself has given to you and a faith that God Himself will continue to renew and strengthen. So these are the, these are the things that Christ must be. Who Christ must be. And there are, according to last count, five. And we'll try to move through this text with some, some uh, level of speed and grace. But let's look at verse 3. So right out of the gate. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So this is the first thing regarding who Christ must be. First, He must be the Christ of power. Simply put. He must be the Christ of power. Remember, this is how Christ reveals Himself to us. And there is a lot of healthy debate as to what this, uh, the, the opening of this verse refers to. This seeing. Look at that word, seeing. Does that relate primarily to the opening to? Or does it relate primarily to what we will see in terms of spiritual growth in verse 5? I'm not exactly sure, but we can rest assured that God knows and that you can see the connection between uh, this passage and the one that follows it and the one that precedes it. Both can, bo- both can be explained by this passage. That we are only to understand our receiving of grace or receiving of faith by the righteousness of Christ. We are only to see that, our, that we have grace and peace in verse 2 based on what Christ has given us by His power. Furthermore, it is through all these things, it is who Christ is that we are able to even experience spiritual growth. So all of these things, regardless of what the grammatical connection is, the point to see is that it is all grounded in who Christ must be. And first, He is the Christ of power. We can take no less. We have divine power revealed to us in Christ. Peter uses the word here, really common Greek word, dunamis. Now keep this in mind, dunamis is the word we get dynamite, but dunamis is not the dynamite of God. There is nothing that God is looking at and He's going to make go boom. There is something much more important going on here. This word dunamis, this power, speaks of God's ability. His, his power in action. His power issued to perform mighty works. It is a power that is above all, which subdues all other powers, earthly or heavenly. A power that we could say is unmistakable in its source, unparalleled in its effect, and unrivaled in grace. In fact, that's what make this, makes this power so unique. It is a gracious power, graciously given. The same power that created the world and holds it together, it is this power that Jesus uses to heal the sick. It is the same power exercised to bring life to the dead, and the same power with which He executes in judgment. It is this power that 
He wields to forgive sins, to grant righteousness. The power which continues to give us everything we need for a righteous life. We'll see that ahead. And it's for, as Peter says, life and godliness. So the power of God, as it were, becomes the foundation of His image bearers, that is us, fulfilling their very purpose, which is to honor and glorify Him. See, it is this power which God, or which Paul says, is the power of God and the salvation. According to 1 Corinthians 5.4, it is in this power that the, of Jesus that the church itself assembles. You know that when we assemble, we are assembled in the power of Christ. His power is brought to bear when we come together for worship. Listen to what Philippians 3.20-21 says. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. Now listen to this. By the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. So two very important things going on here with the exercise of God's power. One is the power to bring resurrection life. It is, to, it is the power to transform our bodies from corruptible to incorruptible. Secondly, we see that this power is the same power that subjects all things to Himself. It is a conquering kind of power in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I think to the great encouragement of the believer, it is through this very power, as Paul will say in Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good. Why can they work together for good? Because it is the power of God at work in it. The very power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, we use these Scriptures and we emphasize this because it is by this power that He grants us life and godliness. So this is the power that is continually at work. It's not something that is just confined to sort of an on, a divine on and off switch, right? like a current. It is the power that is always running, always at work, always accomplishing God's good and perfect purposes. And so... By this divine power, it says that Jesus has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And what a benefit, what a blessing this is, knowing the various struggles that these churches are enduring. Right? Struggle from without regarding those who are persecuting them, and struggle from within regarding false teachers who are peddling false gospels and denying the promises of God. We need power to resist that. We need power to remain standing in place, and we need power to grow in place. And this is why he speaks of life and godliness. And we want to acknowledge here that this power that the Lord Jesus gives, that He reveals, is one that is revealed with great generosity. See, God can never be accused of being miserly, of being stingy of withholding something from us that we need. I mean, that was, that was how He was accused of in the garden. When the serpent came to Eve, God is holding out on you, right? God knows. God knows that the day you eat of the fruit, you will be like Him, knowing good and evil. The fact that Peter writes this here demonstrates to us that God is not withholding good things from us. That God is not failing to give us everything we need. It says He has granted to us by His grace that Christ is a gracious Lord. He has granted to us everything pertaining to life 
and godliness, right? So there's nothing lacking. There's nothing we need to, there's nothing we need to search from within, right? Look, look, look within yourself, right? There's none of that when it comes to living a life with, under the purview of Christ's abundance to us. He grants His saints everything that pertains or is involved in life and godliness. Right? He's given us everything in an exceedingly generous manner. What is this life spoken of? See, very simple words here. Life and godliness. And the two go together because we are called to live a godly life, right? A life devoted to bringing God glory. That's another way that the word godliness can be translated is a life of devotion or even a, a sacred duty. But godliness, it remains. So we say, what is this life spoken of within the context of godliness? A few things to quickly remark. One, it is a life by God. That's the first thing you know. It is a life by God. Meaning that it is authored by and sourced in God Himself. Right? We do not understand life apart from understanding God because God is life and He is the life giver. So it is a life by God. Right? Which makes it holy. Which makes it all good. And here's the second one coming from this. It's a life by God, but it's also a life from God. Here's where grace is engaged, right? He has granted us this. The fact that He has granted us everything pertaining to life means that He has given us new life. He's given us eternal life. Life free from the power of sin and the power of death. Thirdly, it is a life in God. That all that we do is in reference to Him. All that we do is for Him. All that we do is because of Him. See, this life in Him colors our very existence. We are alive in Christ, and Christ is alive in us. That's what Paul was explaining to the Galatians. Not I who live, but Christ lives in me. Here's another one. It is a life with God. Right? Here is the joyous occasion of a life of fellowship. When God calls us to Himself, He calls us to life with Him. Life in His presence. And so, it is in this life with God where we walk with Him, right? A constant, ongoing, day-by-day life lived in faith with God, with, with His fellowship, with all of His blessings, with His undeserved favor shown toward us. And finally, it is a life for God, right? He gives this richly to us, but ultimately it is lived for His glory, for His honor, and to make His name great. See, God is the, one, is the one person who has the right to claim that all is done for His glory. It is right and good that He demands such a thing, and it is right and good that He should ask it of us, that He should command it of us, that, when we, that the life that He gives us is to be lived for Him, so that He will be proclaimed faithfully. Right? This is what He calls us to. So everything. See, nothing, nothing is missing from us. There is nothing that prevents us from living a life of godliness. God has given it all to us in Christ. And so all this generosity comes from, from His heart. He desires life. He desires godliness from His people and for His people. And that which He conforms His people to, He will give exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. 
so precious is life and godliness to him, so, so it should be precious to us. Right? It's important that we are conformed to godliness. It is a way of life. See, if Christ gives us everything in his power, then we should use everything in his power. So note how the scriptures speak of this provision. In Psalm 84:11, we read this: For the Lord God is a sun and shield, the Lord gives grace and mercy. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. See, those who walk uprightly are those who belong to him, those who, who walk by faith. This is not works righteousness in view. Those that by his own power, in his strength, walk righteously. And he gives them grace and glory, and he does not withhold any good thing to those who know him. Think of Romans 8:32. He, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He will, and he does. In 1 Corinthians 3, 21-22, we read this, So let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. So this, I think, really explains the, the depth, really the, the scope of this, uh, this life that Christ has given to us, the, these things that really characterize life and godliness. It says everything, right? Everything. And so even things that, think, think of death, for instance. Paul mentioned this in 1 Corinthians 3. Or the world, or life, or death. It means even death itself, right? Something that some of us really dread. You know? We don't like to think about death, even though it's a conquered enemy. But even death will fail to, in the end, to rob us from our everlasting joy and satisfaction in Christ. It will, it, it will ultimately lose. Right? It will not compromise our life in Christ. In fact, Ultimately, it will be swallowed up in victory. But within that scope, all things belong to us. Why? Because, that, because God has granted it so. So that is the Christ of power. Secondly, we have this. Jesus must be the Christ of praise. So He is the Christ of power. And secondly, He is the Christ of praise. So that in, the, in this part of the passage, there is an element to it which draws us inevitably to worship Him. So let's look at our passage again. Seeing that His divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of Him who calls us by His own glory and excellence. So we have some very lofty language here, right? But... He calls us to this. He gives us life and godliness. How does this life and godliness come about? What is, what is the pathway, right? It is, what is the channel? It is through true knowledge. So this, so this life and godliness is experienced. It grows. It cultivates through knowledge. That is, we cannot divorce knowing God more from a life of godliness. So this happens through a true knowledge, an experiential knowledge of God, an intimate knowing. It is, a, it is a knowledge that is revealed only by God Himself and not by man. So it is a knowledge revealed through the Scriptures and proclaimed by the apostles. It is a knowledge that results in spiritual fruit. And what I'm, what I'm listing here 
is that which distinguishes true knowledge from a false knowledge because there is a counterfeit knowledge that is being peddled in these churches, right? And, and when, it, when it comes to whether first century church or even what we're experiencing now, it's typically a secret knowledge, right? It is a knowledge that is cut off to other believers, but resides in some kind of hidden wisdom of, of the, this false teacher who brings this false gospel. And you have to join his ranks. You have to become his disciple in order to become aware of this transforming knowledge. But we say, no, the knowledge that has been given to us through the gospel is a sufficient, life-transforming revelation from God Himself. And so how do we know it's a true knowledge? Okay, So backing it up, true knowledge is revealed in the Scriptures, right? It's, opost- it's, it's the apostolic faith proclaimed. Secondly, it's a knowledge that results in spiritual fruit. That is, to know Christ, friends, is to become like Him. If you truly know Christ, you will be like Him. Which means also that you sin less. If you really, <laughs> A true knowledge will produce sanctification and sanctification will mean that you will sin less you will come to hate your sin you will flee from sinful opportunities third thing a true knowledge results in obedience you will obey god you will delight in his word you will love his law in first john 2 3 we read this by this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments how do we know we truly know god we keep his commandments And His commandments, I love saying this, His commandments are not burdensome. They are obeyed in the power of the Holy Spirit. So even in obeying His commandments, God helps us. It's part of the exercising of His divine power. So through a true knowledge of Him who called us, His gracious calling of God, by His own glory and excellence. So the call of God is a precious thing. We see this call in context, an effectual call. A call which results in salvation, which results in genuine belief, which results in genuine knowledge. Right? Think of Romans 4.17. As it is written, the Father of many nations, I have made you. God speaking to Abraham. In the presence of Him who, whom He believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist so this is this is this passage helps us understand uh, the calling that peter is describing here it's a call to life it's like the the gospel is saying live and by the exercise of god's power we respond and are born again second thessalonians 2 13 through 14 we read this but we should always give thanks to god for you brethren beloved by the lord because god has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification, by the Spirit and faith and truth. It was, listen to this, verse 14, it was for this He called you through our Gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the Gospel is a call for dead sinners to live. Right? We are calling them to life in Christ. Now, of course, they can't make themselves alive, but that's why the Gospel is the power of God into salvation. The power is in the Word of Christ. It's knowledge. We always pursue knowledge in these things. Knowledge of Christ. Knowledge of all that He gives us. But note how this ends. So so we're called to a true knowledge of Him who, through a true knowledge of Him who called us. How does He call us? It's a really interesting phrase here. Him who called us by His own glory and excellence right 
This is sort of similar to what we read in verse 2, if you want to draw your attention up a little ways. Actually, verse 1 says, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. So that is what that calling results in, a reception of a true faith in Christ. But look at this. How is this accomplished? By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we kind of have a a little parallel passage here to help us understand this a little further. He called us by His own glory and excellence. So let's, let's finish looking through this part of the part of the verse, that He is the Christ of praise. And this is, this is where we see the, the praiseworthy part. That as we grow in a knowledge of, of, of Christ, we find that He has called us by His own glory and excellence, and that is a term which helps us draw ourselves to worshiping Him. When we see Christ's glory and excellence on display, our response is to worship Him because we are seeing that which is ultimately praiseworthy about the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're called by His own glory and excellence. Now if you remember in 1 Peter, studying that in chapter 2, Peter explains to the churches the reasons that God has called them to be His people. And it was for this reason, that they should declare the excellencies of Him who called them out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Remember, he said, once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. See, to proclaim the excellencies. The same word is used here in Second Peter. So these excellencies speak of all that is, that is morally excellent and perfect and virtuous. So there's a moral component to this. Not a moralistic component, but in terms of a godliness, a holiness that's in view here. So what does this mean? What does this mean that Christ calls you by, by His excellence and glory, right? Well, for one, you know certainly that Christ isn't going to call you according to your own excellence and glory. What is He going to call you by? He's not going to call you by anything that is inherently valuable concerning you. He's not going to call you by anything that is good about you or worthy about you or righteous about you because outside of Christ, we lack all of those things. Rather, we are called by Christ's own glory and excellence. So the truth here for us is that when God effectually, that is, savingly and redemptively calls us to Himself, when He does so, He puts on a display of His own glory and excellence in His death and resurrection and current reign. He puts on display what is glorious and excellent and praiseworthy about Himself. You notice that when you came to faith in Christ for the first time, when you first believed the Gospel, that was something that really changed? Because before, you didn't see Christ as glorious. You didn't see Him as excellent. Right? I don't know what you saw it as, but it definitely wasn't those things. But now that you are in Him, when you came to Him, when you came to a true saving knowledge of Him, those were the things that were revealed to you, right? Those were the things that were put on display. Is that Christ is glorious and that He is most excellent. And all that, in, all that pertains to the Gospel in that is, is revealed. And yet Christ calls you to that, right? His own, His own glory, right? That you may be a partaker of that. His own excellence. That, that, that His people now see clearly a standard of what is righteous. So this 
glory and excellence definitely has a, a benefit for us as we live a life of godliness. But we must see that He puts Himself on display, and that elicits all that is praiseworthy and desirable and precious to His people. So He calls us by that, right? Just as He called us by His righteousness, He calls us by His own glory. It was a to call a people to Himself was in and of itself a glorious and excellent act. Why? Because God declared it so. It is a praiseworthy thing that God calls people to Himself. So on the heels of that is our third one, is that He must be the Christ of promise. So look at verse 4. We are in verse 4. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. This is a, I love this verse. So, look, this really tells us what Christ has given us generously in light of life and godliness. Peter says, His precious and magnificent promises. See, through, through these things, we could go back and say, His own glory and excellence. Right? They are magnified even more by granting us to us His precious and magnificent promises. So two very key words here, because I don't want us, I definitely do not want us to treat with some casual, uh, apathetic attitude the promises of God. Right? We want to know what God thinks of these promises. And he, says, and he says through Peter, they are two things. And this is not an exhaustive list. They are precious to us, and, that, and they are magnificent. So precious simply speaks to what we understand in common language is precious. It's valuable, right? Peter brings us up in his first letter when he tells the churches that they were not saved by corruptible things like gold and silver, though they may seem valuable in the earthly sense. They pale in comparison with what Peter says is the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so we have to think of the promises of God this way. But they are precious, not because of just what they are, but because of what they aren't, right? We, we understand the promises in terms of what they give. They give eternal life. They give abundant joy, and so on and so forth. But think of what they aren't. They are without defect, right? They aren't defective. They aren't compromised, right? They are beyond compare. They are exceedingly precious to us, and they lead to life eternal. He says they are magnificent, very great. Just think, as the Greek reflects, they are mega promises, right? They're, yes, these promises are great, but they are extraordinary. They are magnificent. They are meant to uh, portray to us a God who is worthy of our worship, right? That, that, that is how we respond. These things lead us to praise Him. So the question becomes this. These Promises are precious and magnificent, but what are the promises in view? And when I really started diving into this, there's far too many to list. I mean, look at God's promises given, and note that He keeps every one. That's a promise, right? It's a word that God gives that He will keep, right? that He will fulfill and will not fail to do so. These are precious promises. It says, buy them, right? These uh, promises relate to partaking of the divine nature, as he'll describe later on in this text. But what are these precious and great promises? So quick, quickly in 2 Peter, write these references down, because Peter 
references the promises in three ways specifically, but I think this passage goes beyond it. So just so we have them written down and see a pattern develop. In uh, chapter 1, verse 11, one of the promises is entrance into the eternal kingdom, right? Uh, Chapter 3, verse 4, the promise mentioned is of His coming in judgment. Remember, unbelievers are mocking this promise. Where is the promise of His coming? But this is a promise mentioned and it will happen. It did happen. Chapter 3, verse 13, we have the promise of the new heavens and new earth. Right. Very creation is being transformed through the proclamation of the Gospel in the expanding kingdom of God. So those are the three promises we have in view. But note, they are all related to the Gospel. And one of them is related to a rejection of the Gospel. But they all have their connection there. But what are these promises? I just want to, you know, I want to encourage you guys because as we, as we survey what the scriptures say about these promises, we can, we can rest assured that God has kept his word and that he will never take these promises back. They are, they are, they, they cannot ever be forfeit, right? So let's, let's use Hebrews 8 6 as a, as a baseline text because it is Hebrews 8 6 that explains are partaking of the new covenant. This is what these promises ultimately point to. Is God through Christ's blood establishing a new covenant with His people, with Israel. Now listen to what Hebrews 8.6 says. But now He has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as He is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. And to sum that up very succinctly without going down too many rabbit trails, the main reason I think that they are better promises is that one, they are mediated through Jesus Christ. Okay? We'll throw in a second one, as these promises are permanent. They are, they are conditional, but the conditions have been met through Christ's life and work. Right? In the Old Covenant, the promises were conditional. You could say that's one of the reasons that the Old Covenant is referred to as a covenant of death, right? The letter kills, the Spirit gives life. So what were these better promises? We can draw our attention to uh, texts that we have been to often, very quickly from in, in Jeremiah 31, and then, and then the prophet Ezekiel talk about the new covenant, the law written on their hearts, a new heart, all, all announced through the prophets, right? So we have that. I believe that the new covenant is in view. And the new covenant comes with certain benefits, right? Certain particular benefits which are given to everyone who is a part of that new covenant. Okay. Now, one of these is very important to mention. Isaiah 32.15, write that reference down. I'm gonna, I encourage you to go through these later. In Isaiah 32.15, we read this, but this he said in reference to the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him and who were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because... Oh, sorry, I got the wrong, I got the wrong, uh, <laughs> wrong uh, uh, reference there. That's John 7.39. Uh, but this He said in reference to the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So that's one of the primary benefits of the New Covenant is the giving of the Holy Spirit to dwell with the entire New Covenant community to seal their hearts for the day of redemption and to call to remind to remembrance the promises of God. So the Spirit dwells with God's people in the New Covenant in a way that He did not dwell with those in the Old. Now, 
Where this is drawn from in particular is Joel 2.28. It will come about after this that I will pour out My Spirit on all mankind, that is, Jew and Gentile. And your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and young men will see visions. Okay. So we have the giving of the Holy Spirit. Very important, much anticipated. This is confirmed in 2 Corinthians 6.16, where Paul is quoting the prophet Ezekiel. He says this, Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, now here he quotes the prophet, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So in this promise, this new covenant promise, God is telling Israel that He will come to dwell with them, never to depart from them again. He will dwell with them in a special way. And of course, that is confirmed by Jesus. It's confirmed by the apostles. If you think of Acts chapter 1, verse 4, this is a very important one where Jesus tells them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. What was that promise? It was the sending of the Holy Spirit so that the Gospel could be proclaimed in power. They quote Joel 2.28 and Acts 2.17. So all of this fits together. And these, are the pro- and these are the promises that have been delivered to all these churches. And it is calling these promises to mind that give great encouragement to these struggling churches. Right? And the thing that I want us to remember here too is that these promises were given originally to who? Israel. They were given to Israel. And who is actively enjoying them right now? The new Israel, the church, right? Composed of Jew and Gentile. They are enjoying these benefits being a part of the new covenant with the dividing wall breaking down. So this is, this is huge for the church. But these promises are now being fulfilled not only in ethnic Israelites, but also through Gen- in Gentiles who have been called to be a part of God's new covenant community. Remember what we described as the new humanity. Listen to Acts 33, also referring to the Holy Spirit. Therefore, Peter's preaching, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. See, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of the Gospel could not be denied. It was evident that the power of God was at at work. In Acts 5.31, we read this, He is the One whom God exalted to His right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. That is to say, we are not waiting for some end time fulfillment of this, of this promise. He is, according to this text, God has, through Christ, granted repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins through the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is happening now. And we are a part of it as proclaimers of the Gospel. Also confirmed by Acts 10.45, all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Galatians 3.14 says a similar thing. 
in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So it was never in the mind of God that it would be confined only to ethnic Israelites. It was meant to expand beyond the borders of Israel to go out to all the world to bring the Gentiles in so that the kingdom of God would be expanded to the ends of the earth. So really that, that the borders of Israel, of true Israel, I will say, would be expanded to the ends of the earth. One more, Ephesians 3, 6. To be specific, the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. On and on and on this goes, this promise of God. These are, the, these are gospel promises fulfilled in Christ. Right. In Romans 15.8, we read this, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. On and on. Romans 9, 8, 9. Write these down. Write these down. Do your own, you can do your own homework. Because this is encouragement for us. We know that God's Word is true and active. So Romans 9, 8 through 9, the same thing. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 1 gives us motivation for a holy life. There, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. One important text, Galatians 3.16, now the promises were given to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one, right? And to your seed, that is Christ. So the promise was given to Christ. So when we believe in Him, this is how it works, we also partake of those promises. Because they all ultimately are pointed to Him. And that's why, that's why Paul can tell the Corinthians, it's in Christ, right? All the promises of God are yes. What promises is he talking about? The promises given to Israel. And now Jew and Gentile, by faith in Jesus, the one to whom these promises are ultimately given, can now be enjoyed by faith. That is how all these promises fit together. And the writer of the Hebrews encourages us to persevere in this. He says, therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you may seem to have come short of it. Make sure that you are truly trusting in the provisions given by Christ. Trusting in that fulfilled promise. Hebrews 6, 11-14. Another good one. Hebrews 9, 15. Hebrews 10, 36. It's all over the place. This isn't something we have to look very carefully for. It's, it just it jumps out of your Bible. And we get to enjoy these promises. So again, do not, do not treat them so lightly, but enjoy them fully. And here's the last one. Last text I'll give. 1 John 2.25 simply says this. This is the promise which He Himself made to us. Eternal life. So how can we understand that promise? That it is one that gives us life eternal. It is one in which we have the Holy Spirit. And it is one in which God comes to dwell with us forever. And of course, this becomes significant in our own experience as believers. See, the Holy Spirit speaks to us through Scripture, brings us to remember these promises so that we stay fixed on Christ. 
He applies those promises so we grow strong in Christ. He also seals us and keeps us from falling away from the faith. He keeps us from being deceived by false teachers by pointing us to Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See how these promises are just, there's so many you can barely contain them. We can barely count them. But that is why we continue to call them to mind. Which leads us to the next one. Who must Christ be? He must also be the Christ who dwells with us. So back to the text. So that by them, right, by these promises, through God fulfilling His Word through His people, that we become partakers of the divine nature. So partaking of the divine nature is the new covenant promise realized. So what does it mean to partake of the divine nature? I want to understand this correctly. And I will say this before I go on. This is, to me, the best definition of a Christian. Yes, What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means I follow Christ. Well, it means I believe in Jesus. It means I obey Jesus. right? I do what He says. It's little, little Christ. It's the best definition. What is a Christian? A Christian is a partaker of the divine nature. That encompasses all of the things I just mentioned. So next time someone asks you that, what does it mean that you're a Christian? That's how you respond. It means I partake of the divine nature. And then they say, well, what does that mean? Glad you asked. Let me explain to you the gospel. Christian is one that partakes of the divine nature. So defining it, Danker sums it up well. Listen to this. To share in the divine nature, therefore, means to participate in the supreme virtues of the chief benefactor with emphasis on righteousness and victory in the face of all that pronounces impermanence for humanity. So this kind of points us back what we just read in the text, right? This granting of everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. To share in the divine nature is is, is an all-encompassing term. But you think about it, to to really partake of the divine nature is to fellowship with Christ. That's what it means. is to have abiding fellowship with God and all of the benefits that He brings to us in Christ. Listen to what John Gill says about this. By way of resemblance and likeness, the new man or principle of grace being formed in the heart of regeneration after the image of God and bearing a likeness sorry, being, bearing a likeness to the image of His Son, and this is styled Christ formed in the heart into which image and likeness the saints are more and more changed from glory to glory through the application of the Gospel and the promises of it. What does this mean? It means that to partake of the divine nature means that we are seeing ourselves more and more transformed into Christ's likeness. So there's the reality, but there's also the benefit, right? There's an attitude as well. It's transformative. Listen to Calvin on this. But we, disregarding empty speculations, ought to be satisfied with this one thing, that the image of God in holiness and righteousness is restored to us for this end, that we may at length be partakers of eternal life and glory as far as it will be necessary for our complete felicity, for our happiness, for our joy. There is a transforming element. There is a growth, right? A maturity, an enlargement of of this. So we are not partakers of the divine nature in some kind of stagnant fashion, right? We find that by it we we grow and we strengthen ourselves, right? Listen to Ephesians 13, how Paul describes this. 
until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That is the goal of partaking of the divine nature. Finally, I will say this. The final thing that Christ must be. Christ must be the Christ of deliverance. So we find that there is a a final effect to this, right? So back to the text. For by these He has granted to us precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, right? Not deified, right? Not deified. We don't become God, but we become Christ-like. We become glorified. Then He says this, having, this is possible, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So we're not just coming, we're not just coming to something, but Peter is clear that you are escaping something. So, so I think that the truth here is very clear for the Christian that what we are delivered out of has nothing to do with what we are currently partaken of, partaking of, right? If you are partaking of the divine nature, you are to have nothing to do with the corruption that you have now escaped by God's saving action, by Christ's deliverance of you. So the final point of this, He is the Christ of deliverance. And through that deliverance, we find that we have escaped the corruption, right? We escape corruption. That's the effect of Christ's saving work. This is a word that comes up often, corruption, particularly in the political realm. Talk about our country constantly. We talk about it. We see it on the news. That it's being run into the ground by corrupt politicians. We talk about the Washington swamp full of corruption refers typically to moral decay, a state of deterioration, the decay of this fallen world, right? It's the same word that Jonah uses that characterizes a pit. He says, I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. This is when he was in the belly of the fish. But you have brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Christ delivers you from the swamp so that you may no longer partake of it. Isaiah uses the same word corruption to speak of the judgment of Jerusalem. In 24.3 of Isaiah, he says this, the earth will be completely laid waste or completely spoiled, right? Corrupted, for the Lord has spoken this word. See, that's the corruption we escape. And in Christ, through His Gospel, we find that He is not only transforming us, He is transforming this world. Remember, one of His promises is one of a new heaven and new earth. We desire as proclaimers of the Gospel that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I believe one day it will. So whatever the Lord does, whatever the Lord does not conform to His own will, whatever remains corrupted will be judged and cast into outer darkness. And so we find that Christ has delivered us from such a fate. And we are given new desires. It is a desire that we would see Christ as Lord and King. This lust is what this speaks of. This lust is a desire. A desire that is counter to the will of God. It is a desire which does not receive Christ as Lord and King. It is a self-exalting desire which seeks, in which man seeks to liberate himself both from divine authority and divine grace. It, it resists both of those. It rejects both of those even while we are calling men to embrace them and to see the praiseworthiness in them. But God would have us conform to Himself. 
to His Son. See, this is why all creation groans, as Paul describes in Romans 8. It's like the earth is a slave to corruption. But as we proclaim the Gospel, that which the Lord redeems, He will be faithful to do so. That which He brings into conformity will be saved, and whatever is left will be judged. So important is this, that it is a personal thing, right? This, this is what we desire even for our very body. In 1 Corinthians 15.42 we read this, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a, a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. A body without corruption. We are corrupt now, but even corruption will be removed from us. That is the degree to which God delivers us from this world. Right? Colossians characterizes it as us being transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. So when we are delivered from it, we are delivered not only from the realm, but the very desires that characterize it. You realize when God calls us and saves us, He gives us new desires. We want different things. That is a mark that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. We have new desires. Desires different from the world. It is this very corruption and lust that even false teachers will not ultimately escape. If you go ahead to First Peter two or Second Peter two eighteen through twenty, we read this: For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves to corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, this is not a saving knowledge, this is a temporary knowledge. This is an assent to fact, but not a trust. It says this, They are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state becomes worse for them than the first, because they will be judged. They will be condemned knowing the truth. They knew the truth. They knew the Gospel, and yet still rejected it. They still loved the world more than they loved righteousness. That's why we have the warning in Galatians 6.8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Right? So we have that promise. And this is active in us. 1 John says the world is passing away. We know. right? All that, is, all that rejects Christ as Savior and Lord will pass away. And the desires, even the desires of the world, will be no more. You realize that? That in glory, the only desire that will be here will be a desire to see Christ exalted. That will be the one prevailing desire. Anything counter to that will be completely gone. So that all that, all that man was originally designed to love and treasure and desire will be present with Christ in glory. And that's why John will say, the one who does the will of God abides forever. What is the will of God? To believe in His Son whom He has sent. And that is how Christ reveals Himself in this book, my friends, in these two verses. That is, this is who Christ must be. But think of that. We can stake our very eternity on this. This is who Christ presents Himself to us to be and will be no other. He will be this consistently. He will be the Christ of power. He will be the Christ of praise. He will be the Christ of promise. 
He is the Christ who dwells with His people, and He is the Christ who will deliver us. The very Christ of deliverance. The rock of our salvation. This is who He is, and this is who we worship, and this is who we trust. And as I said before, if He, as proclaimed, is for us, then who can be against us? He equips us to face everything and to come through with faith intact. That is the Christ we know and love and serve. Let's pray. Father, thank you again uh, for your love for us. We thank you that you have sent your Son, our Savior, that these are the things he must be. He must be because you have declared it so. And help us, Lord, to not be those who are, are in unbelief, but we take these things and embrace them with all our hearts that we know how we must respond to Christ, that we must proclaim Him and believe Him and know Him, but there are things, Father, that must inform that. How can we proclaim a Christ that has not revealed Himself to us? How can we proclaim and believe and know a Christ that we are unsure of? And yet here we have this comfort that You have revealed Him so clearly that He may be our everything. And I pray that He would be, that we would repent from treating Him with such passivity, with such carelessness. Lord, even treating Him with unbelief. I pray, Lord, for those here today who do lack assurance that they can find assurance anew in in, in who Christ is, who He must be. That You would restore to us a a desire to praise and worship Him, to, to renew our faith, to trust in His power, to trust in the fact that He is dwelling with us currently, but He is Christ, the Holy One, who will never leave or forsake us. That He has demonstrated that very thing by delivering us from this world that is corrupt and passing away, giving way to a new heaven and new earth. Or that You are restoring creation, that You are exalting it so that it will be a a place for You to dwell with Your people. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. And there's, there's so much we went through today. It's a lot to, a lot to digest and, and to consider. But, but please give us the, the, the wherewithal and the, the humility and the grace to consult Your Word and to examine these things to see if they are so. And to not go unchanged by them. This is Your Word that is spoken to us, Father. And, and we, we want to see... Uh, this knowledge, Lord, this transforming truth do a real work in us that as Your church we may stand not alone but together as Your people to see Your Son proclaimed uh, with passion and with truth and with clarity that our faith would continue to be strengthened and continue to spread among those who do not yet know You. We We pray for their souls, Lord, even those that we don't know yet, that they would come to a true knowledge of You and all the fruit that accompanies it. And we can only trust You for this, Lord, because You are the one who gives it. So we can offer this prayer to You by faith. In Jesus' precious name, Amen.